Hello, this is Impact Ed, and I'm H.D. Chambers with A-Leaf ISD, and I want to welcome everyone to today's episode. Uh, it's going to be a very timely episode. As a matter of fact, this may not be the last time you hear about this topic, because what we're going to discuss today is is moving, and, and every hour or so, something may change. It has to do with school finance. For those who are in the education field and who work in the education field who are listening to this, uh, depending on your, your role, you may know a little bit about school finance, but if you're not an educator and you're... You, here's probably what you do know. You know you pay high property taxes. And if you have children in the school system, you you, you know what happens within your child's classroom. Uh, but there's some big issues at play right now at the te- with the Texas legislature. I have asked two individuals, uh, one who is a deputy superintendent for the business services for ALEAF, Mr. Charles Woods, to join us. I've also invited someone who has been around school finance for a long time, Mr. David Thompson, uh, an attorney. Uh, but also an uh, advocate for public ed uh, through his role with Thompson and Horton. So, uh, David and Charles, thank you guys for joining us. We're going to have a a conversation about where things are today. And just to put it in perspective, uh, we're looking at each other. We all three know that as we sit here right now, and just so you all know, we're recording this on Monday at, what is it, May the 6th at about 12.15 p.m., uh, the Senate is supposed to hear a very important piece of finance legislation, and they've yet to come to the floor to hear it because it's so controversial. So we're going to talk about what we know, and then we'll probably be back uh, here in the next week or so with with more information. So with that, again, thank you guys. Good uh, to Dave, be here. David, I'm going, to ask you, I'm going to ask you to start, if you don't mind, sure. uh, and just give real overarching background about where we are now and how the, the 86th legislature has gotten to this point today with school finance, property taxes, and how all that kind of meshes together. And then we can get into the, the meat of House Bill 3 and what that means and doesn't mean. Sure. Um, I think I would start with the regular session and the special session in 2017. There was actually a lot of interest, as uh, Charles, you and HD both remember, in uh, making some real progress on school funding issues in 2017. The House passed House Bill 21, both in regular session and again in special. The Senate wasn't as interested at that time in taking up significant reform or or reexamination of school finance without a study commission. So instead of getting a bill in 2017, we got a study commission. That's been a good part of the interim uh, particularly most of 2018, and I, I give them credit. They they took their issues uh, seriously. They had a lot of meetings, heard a lot of witnesses, looked at a lot of information, and made some pretty broad-reaching recommendations. And then we had an important event in November of 2018, and that was the general election. And I think supporters of public education showed up and spoke at that election. And I'd don't describe it as being partisan because I like to think of public education as being a bipartisan right. or nonpartisan issue. But I think you had strong supporters of public schools in both the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party generally fare very well in the elections in November of 18. I think that sent a strong message. And mm-hmm. as the legislature got underway in January, it was obvious right off the bat that making significant improvements to public schools and dealing with high property taxes was going to be a priority issue through the session. The House, I think, started sooner on school finance. Mm -hmm. The Senate started sooner on property tax reduction. 
the House, as you remember, you were there, and mm-hmm. Charles, I think you spoke, uh, had significant hearings, took a lot of input, spent a lot of time educating their members, and passed uh, 148 to 1, one of the most comprehensive revisions of school funding that I've seen in 20 or 30 years. Right. And that's House Bill 3. That's the bill number everybody will be hearing about and talking about. Uh, basically, that bill within the appropriation structure had $9 billion to work with uh, to improve schools and to reduce property taxes. The House spent about $6.3 billion in, redu- in improving funding for schools, about $2.7 billion to buy down or reduce local property taxes, and, and I think set the framework going forward, hopefully, for some continued improvements uh, in out years. And, and I give them a lot of credit for that work. Like I say, the Senate started more on the how do we cut property taxes right. side as opposed to the school funding side. HD, you mentioned uh, today is May 6th. Signy die is May 27th. It's three weeks from today. And the Senate, for the first time, is just now getting to the floor with a conversation or discussion about public school finance. So we'll see how that fares as the day goes on in the Senate. Uh, I think we're all expecting we'll wind up in conference committee. We'll have a different – what that means to the listeners is the House will pass one plan. The Senate will pass a slightly different or maybe very different plan. They will have to go to a conference committee to work out those differences and and hopefully come to one plan that will be approved by both the House and Senate before the end of the session. So as we sit here today, we don't know – we know what what has been proposed and has been passed out of the House – um, and as you mentioned, the Senate, and just so you know, they just now took the floor. So Chairman, I just saw that. <laughs> so yep. Chairman, Chairman Taylor is beginning to lay out the to lay out his bill. Charles, from a school district perspective, I mean, you and I work obviously work together a lot. But in in terms of your uh, your research and what you've been following, what David just described with the House plan, what are what are the what are a couple of the highlights from the House plan that you would that you think listeners need to be aware of, and then maybe based on what we know, contrast that with a couple of things out of the Senate plan? Well, first off, I guess, you know, following up from the last time we had significant reform, which was uh, under Governor Rick Perry in, in 0506, and we, we came down from a the statutory limit of a, of $1.50 for M&O taxes, and it was bought down to a dollar to, to our current compression level. The funding came from a, a number of sources, but primarily from the franchise tax, which uh, come to find out that really didn't pay for itself, pay for the, the structural forced compression of the tax rate to give tax relief. This time on the priority list for the governor was, uh, for under Governor Abbott, was tax reform and tax relief, both changing the structure, changing the, uh, the tax bill to the taxpayer whether they be business, uh, commercial, or residential, but also the school safety issues that have come up in all over the country and addressing the school finance reform. That's what's in House Bill 3. And coming out of the commission, a number of legislators were part of that commission, including uh, Chairman Huberty in the House, who is the chairman of the Public Ed Committee in the House. And included in House Bill 3, the original House version, are some pretty significant structural changes, and the biggest one being the increase of what's called the basic allotment. And that's the 
the foundation school program, the piece of, of core dollars that funds the education for everybody. In the current law, that's $5,140 per student, uh, per weighted student. And suffice it to say, there's there's a lot of math behind this that, that we, won't get into. we can get into the weeds <laughs> on real quick. But ultimately, it's it starts with that basic allotment of five thousand one hundred forty dollars in the House Bill three. That went up to six thousand and thirty dollars. That's eight hundred and ninety dollar increase per student. That is just significant. Doesn't matter if if you're a Robin Hood district who pays recapture or not. Everybody benefits from that. That's a that's a a huge move yep. toward, toward equity. It's a huge equalizer for everybody. And so the more dollars put in the basic allotment, the better the overall end result will be for everybody uh, who's operating a public school. That's an important point that I think the average citizen needs to understand about school funding is the basic allotment, right, David? Yep, that is absolutely the building block, as Charles described it, that everything else kind of sits on top of. So every kid who walks in a schoolhouse door has a price tag on their head. Yep. So anyway, thank you. I, I, so for us to, to, to have a basic allotment, that's called, in the funding formula, that's called Tier 1. And that Tier 1, in order for us to get access to that $6,030 that they increased it to, under current law, we have to, to leverage our compressed rate, which is a dollar. Uh, so a dollar of our M&O rate is, is our share or the local taxpayer's share of that $6,030, the state pays the difference. In Robin Hood districts, if they make more than with a dollar's worth of taxes than 6030 then the state reduces their share. So that's the, the Robin Hood recapture part of it. So bottom line is everybody has to kick in a dollar's worth of taxes. So a dollar of it, of your tax in M&O, is structurally part of the foundation program it's there. It's not school district choice. It's it's in state law. In House Bill three, they reduced that to ninety six cents. That's called compression. That's, so that's tax relief. So that's the taxpayer relief. The taxpayer part is in simple terms, right. and and I think HD, you've probably covered this in in maybe previous podcasts. Mm-hmm. It's important for your voters to remember, and for all of our listeners to remember, in our system, when local property values go up. And, and I'm going to say I'm I'm more in favor of values going up than values going down. Yeah, uh, if I had to live with one or the other, I'll I'll live with rising values. But if values go up and taxpayers actually at the dollar or dollar four that Charles was talking about, your tax bill gets bigger because values went up. The rate didn't go up, but the values did, so you pay right. more. That doesn't automatically mean the schools get more. Mm-hmm. Under our system, the state simply views that as a savings to the state and reduces state funds or replaces state dollars with those rising local dollars. The tax relief part of House Bill 3 is to reverse that process. In simple terms, it's to take state money, put it into the system to replace local money. That's certainly important to our taxpayers, and and I think we're all taxpayers. We all care about that. But it's important to remember that that doesn't actually give the school more money to work with. You're changing the funding source, and that's an important part of this effort. But that's not the part that's going to help educate kids. The part that educates kids is the part that I think Charles is going to get to that grows off of the basic allotment. And those are the improvements that are going to actually help prepare the next generation and the generation after that. 
So we got to do both of those two things, but we don't need to lose uh, that focus on what our real purpose is. Most people that don't pay attention to this don't realize how structurally tied at the hip, if you will, that teaching school and property taxes have with each other. You can't talk about one without the other. They're two sides of the same conversation. That's exactly right. Charles, talk about the current House Bill 3 version of it is. uh, So we've talked about the how it's going to try to provide some tax relief. How's it going to trip? What are they asking us to do with the money they're going to give us through that increase in the basic allotment? Part of the, the of every bill, and this school finance bill is, is no exception. I think House Bill 3 is 230 pages, I believe. And then I think they, it may be up to 300 okay. now. But it's <laughs> they ran you know, 90 amendments past yeah. it and before it got out of the House and with that 148 to 1 vote. And now in the Senate version, they've taken and replaced it with a, a substitute. But core to the original House Bill 3 were some significant changes in the, in the additional allotments that for students based on populations. And that is, they made a, a structural change to increase the amount of money given to every uh, district per student of who is um, educationally disadvantaged, which in prior terminology that was economically disadvantaged. But from a multitude of directions, that's always been based off of our free and reduced lunch percentages or counts. And now in the in the new House Bill 3, that level of funding is going to come from not only whether or not you qualify for free and reduced lunch, but also based on where you live, what census block you're in, the census data that's most current based on median income, whether or not you're a single parent household, whether or not your average highest level of educational attainment owners versus renting to comprise what's called a a tier of poverty for a census block that's rated in a gradations of one to five. They've increased the funding per student 5%. Right off the bat, we've increased a half a percent for every student in, in education that's who's educationally disadvantaged, but another 5% based on how these generational poverty areas that need additional assistance because we all know that that's a definite uh, cost of education that where additional support is needed. They also raised the, the allotment that we get for bi- teaching bilingual programs, increased it for dual language as well, which we didn't have before. Uh, tried to average and make it easier to understand transportation funding. It's still quite insignificant in the overall f- funding scheme, but uh, made a big push for early education with a couple of different allotments. One is for all the students that you have and kinder through third grade, giving a 10% multiplying weight times that basic allotment. So that, in other words, that's $603 additional for any any student who's K through three in order to fund full day pre-K uh, so that we can make progress in that third grade reading level. As well, increasing the weight on special ed, 5%. Then asking in the end of the bill, a number of requirements, which would be that you give full-time employees a raise, 25% of that increase in the basic allotment, that you increase the number of students passing at the third grade level in reading, 
And those would come in the form of bonuses. And at the last minute was stripped out of the House and then got added back in the Senate. And so there's several what we call bonus structures that are built in for student performance that in the Senate version now are tied to actual star test performance. Which is another issue in and of itself. I think one thing that to me, David, and this may be one of the things you were alluding to and it's probably the most, I don't know, reformative pieces of finance legislation in a long time, is the money is being more redirected to kids who need it. I, I would agree with that. I mean, I do I do think, frankly, uh, that they've got enough money to kind of address a variety of needs. And so uh, Charles mentioned the significant increase in the basic allotment, which helps all kids. I think that is hugely important. That increases equity and reduces recapture at the same time. That's probably a good right. thing. The fast growth allotment for fast growing schools is increased. So there's there's some of those funds, but I do think you're a hundred percent right, HD. The the targeted funds, particularly for low income kids, for English language learners who make up a majority of our student population and hopefully will be every single one of them successful, thriving, productive Texans in years to come. The dollars are very definitely put in those areas where where those needs are the greatest. And, and I think that's the most significant thing I've seen in this bill compared to what I've seen over previous, probably yeah. the last 20 years or so. So with those new allotments come a lot of extra requirements, and that's what's been... That, uh, that's always the trade-off. <laughs> is, yeah. So I, yeah. you know, I keep coming back to, I, I'm reminded of that song by, most of you will, probably won't remember, but Roy Rogers and the Sons of the Pioneers and the Tumbling Tumbleweeds was a song. And that's kind of what I think what the legislature thinks of us is that we're just floating along randomly and with the wind, and and we need to be told what to do and exactly how to do it, and we'll feed you exactly how much you need to get it done. And that's, when you look at the total scope of the finance legislation, it's way beyond House Bill 3. There are so many bills that are standalone tax bills that further limit districts in cities and counties on how much they can even try to get passed by voters, much less the amount of revenue you can earn, let's say, or keep from growing property values in the future. But I guess one point of House Bill 3 and its version in the Senate that's still structurally there is this ongoing reduction in the state's share of funding as time goes on and as property values rise. Because even though our total revenue will be captured or capped under Senate Bill 2, which is a whole other bill that d- deals with tax growth, that tax reform bill will keep us capped at 2.5% by changing our, our rollback rate so we can only grow 2.5% in dollars in revenue. It still allows the state share to drop. And so over time, it's still the structural issue is, is that this legislation and our taxing scheme for funding and and paying for schools is still going to be primarily based on property taxes, and it still allows the state to reduce their share over time. Charles, uh, having watched school funding and participated in some of these conversations and debates since the late 70s, I've sometimes analogized and described how we deal with school finances. We finally reach a crisis point. We have kind of a cathartic really engaged legislative response to it, and then there's a tendency to neglect it for a number of years and things get back out of sync. 
and we then have to step back in and deal with it again. I've compared it, and we're coming up on Memorial Day. I've, I've used this as an analogy. I've said if you if you mowed your yard, trimmed your flower beds, got everything looking just exactly right over Memorial Day, and then didn't touch your yard till Labor Day, it would look pretty bad and your neighbors would be pretty unhappy with you. So there are things in life that require ongoing, regular attention and maintenance and taking care of our kids and our schools is one of those things. I think the legislature is making uh, really significant and, and great efforts this session and I appreciate all of the work that they've put into yeah. it. We know we know what the House has done, and they did a great work. Anytime you get to 148 votes on a, something of this nature in the House where you have Republicans, Democrats, rural Texas, urban Texas, all in agreement, you know they've done some, some serious good work. And it remains to be seen will follow during the ne- day or next couple of days what the Senate does. But... The real key isn't just what they do this session. It's going to be keeping that yeah. attention and focus and sustainability in years to come and come back and address that issue so we don't slide back into into old bad habits. Part of what you said earlier, too, David, is the promises that are made during elections, coming out of elections, um, feed a lot into the negotiations of what happens with the dollars that are available or they do make available, whether they can realize those dollars and the budget side is is a whole different question. But but right now, I think one of the big arguments is, is teachers need raises. When, and we've got a built into the structure of school finance now a $5,000 per teacher raise. Now, that's only on the, the Senate, Senate side. On the Senate side. The, the House, House Which, took a different right, approach. Right. House, House was a quarter of your basic allotment to, to full-time employees. But, you know, I come, keep coming back to this didn't happen overnight, and we've been underfed, if you will, or underpaying educators for a lot of years. And so it's not just teachers. It's, it's all professions, but... We're struggling to keep technology professionals from when you have a, a growing economy or an economy that's doing well, it makes it especially difficult to keep employees of professions outside the classroom. But one example that's everybody's fighting with all over the state are trying to keep bus drivers. You know, they're being they're paid a little bit over the poverty level, and it's just based on what funds are available to pay for all the different positions that you have and, and what you're fighting with is constant turnover. There's folks right now getting eighty, ninety thousand dollars to drive with a CDL license to drive a truck haul, hauling gravel or mud to <laughs> oil wells, and and it's it's simply a, a a case of here's a profession that has probably the most precious cargo we have in the in the entire economy. That's kids. And we need to pay them more. We need to, not just teachers, but every, you know, especially some of those. I, I was talking to a superintendent out in the Permian, and uh, he said one afternoon a um, representative of a oil field services company was waiting outside of his bus barn, <laughs> and as bus drivers were leaving, he was waving them over and basically saying, if you have a CDL, a clean drug test, which, of course, you have to have to be a school bus driver. Show me your last pay stub and multiply it by two. Whatever whatever you're getting paid, just double it. And, yeah. and the soup's comment was, how, how do we compete in a market that is that tight? 
not only in the classroom for a lot, but for a lot of these important support services, Charles, that you were alluding to. Tying it back to the House version of House Bill 3, just so people understand the difference in the two, the House version attempts to provide all these employees with some form of, of pay increase, uh, by, as Charles described, by taking 25% of whatever that increase you receive from the basic allotment increase. The Senate, on the other hand, at least up till now, they have uh, earmarked $5,000 a year for librarians and teachers, and, and that's it. Now, that may change going forward, but just so people can contrast the two big Right. Those two big expenditures. That's where a lot of the money is. That's where a bunch of the money is. And I want to be very clear because I know we have a lot of teachers and a lot of educators that listen to this, not just in A-Leaf, but we we have a lot across the the spectrum. This contrast between the $5,000 raise and something that would be a little smaller but for everyone else is going to be kind of a, at least in my opinion, will be be part of the, the structural discussion that once these bills get to the conference committee about what's that number uh, we've done as much as we can in our district to to be realistic with our teachers about the five thousand. It's it's only been passed by the Senate. The House is not taking it up. If anything comes from it, it'll be in conference committee. But at the same time, making them aware that the state's attempting to do something with their compensation, and each individual district's going to hopefully have an opportunity to do a little bit more, not only for teachers but for for other for other classes of employees. We're going to talk just a little bit about the Senate version, but before we get to that, I. I'm curious about y'all's thought on this this notion, and Charles alluded to it very briefly. I'm going to make a statement, and maybe you guys react to it, that regardless of what version of the bill, the Senate version that we know of now or the House version that was passed, and you're right, David, that 148 to 1 vote doesn't need to be overplayed. It can't be overstated. They can't agree on what day of the week it is to get 148. And, and the one guy who voted no, if he's there, he's a no. <laughs> he's a no, that's right, exactly. So he, it wasn't like he had a philosophical, he just right. no, it's just no. I'd like, react to this. Regardless of the version of the bill, do you see a continual, and I'm going to use the word erosion because I can't think of a better word, but continually erosion of local control of whether it's a local board making a decision, a superintendent, a city council or county. In your experience, David, are you are you seeing that continue with the, even these two pieces? I, I think that's something we always have to struggle with, and uh, and there there are certainly aspects of House Bill Three, both in the House Bill and the Senate Bill, that increase state control at the expense of local authority or decision making. You know, one of my core philosophies of government is that every decision ought to be made at the lowest possible level at which it can competently be made. Some decisions have to be made at a national level because their impact is national in scope. Some decisions have to be made at the state level because they affect the entire state. And But some decisions ought to be made at the local school level, some at the campus level, and some even at the classroom level. And I think there's always a tendency to migrate those decisions to higher levels simply because it's easier to do it as opposed to letting more decisions be made at a lower level. And I'm not just worried about the transfer of authority from local communities to the state, but even within the state, transferring from the State Board of Education, for example, which is an elected body to the Commissioner of Education, who is an appointed single official. And I think very highly of our commissioner and many commissioners that have sat in that seat over the years. But 
we've had this conversation before. If you make a mistake at that level, you haven't made one mistake. You've made a thousand mistakes because it affects every single school district and it affects every part of Texas. So I think we always have to look very closely at that issue and we have to be uh, uh, observant and push back when we have opportunities to uh, keep those decisions in the hands not only of local districts, but I like to see principals and teachers have a power to make decisions in their own lives on a daily basis. Yeah, I think um, we've seen that in past sessions, and I don't think it's any different this time. We used to, local boards had control of their raising their taxes. Mm-hmm. That was taken away, I think, I guess it was 05, 06, and, and now it was voting for a, a tax ratification election. And, and even now, that's being um, uh, limited in some fashion in some of these variants of these bills along with uh, bond elections and just the amount of hoops that have to be jumped through um, and ballot language changes to to make it clearer for the voter, but at the same time, potentially make it less possible to pass bond elections. And that is the the most control you can have is, is electing a school board or city council or county commissioners who or are going to make those decisions to sell bonds. And uh, I compare that with the the requirement for charter schools to sell bonds, and they don't require that uh, of them because they don't have a taxing tax base. So there is no go to the voters, and mm-hmm. it's just sell them. I've always been interested in the titles we use for elected officials. Just think about it for a minute. We have... We, we have President, senator, representative, governor. At the local level, we have mayor, council member, commissioner. We have a lot of different words that trustee, are used. Trustee. And the unique word we use only in yep. the educational context <laughs> is trustee. Yep, that's because we entrust these individuals with two of our most important things in life, our kids and our money. And just think about that. But the fact that out of every elected official you can think of, we call school board members trustees Hmm. uh, because they hold an office in trust and we trust them with some of the most important things that will ever affect local communities and families. I bring that up because it's obvious that there has been – Again, an erosion, if you will, an erosion of that. And and while the trustees of a school board are entrusted, a reasonable person who just observes what's been happening related or relevant to the who's in control, who's making decisions, would come to the conclusion that our elected representatives and senators at the state level don't trust them as much or have not trusted them as much. Well, in HD, you know, all of us, there there are going to be boards that make mistakes. Yeah. There are going to be superintendents yep. that make mistakes. There are going to be lawyers that make mistakes. Right. The solution to that is to educate those people, try again, get it right. It's not to centralize the decision-making process. Which is as far away from the problem as anything, which goes back to right. your, your original point. Yep. We, we've talked about the House plan. Charles... There's a couple of critical differences in the House plan and the Senate plan. We we touched on the, the teacher pay. Just for people listening, put put the money 
and let's just for 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 right now for sake of argument let's say 9 billion dollars is the amount of money that they're going to contribute to both property tax relief and school funding and we've already identified those two things are tied at the hip talk about the $5,000 raise and what that does in terms of total cost to that 9 billion what the property tax relief that we understand it right now is and then what does that leave us left over to, to, to use discretionary. Yeah, and that's why I, I said that the appropriations process um, has to put this into check. In, in, and sometimes that happens in conference committee or based on other bills passage contingencies. And built into the Senate version is that a contingency to a resolution of passage, which is going to convert some sales tax revenue, increase sales tax, and convert that to dedicated for the purpose of reduction of property tax. But in the base bills that are there now, the $5,000 teacher raise is roughly $3 billion of that, a third of that. A third of that I is- I think it's closer to four, Yeah, actually. Another third of, of the $9 billion is is the original uh Four cents of compression and in in the basic allotment of the down to ninety six cents, but the Senate went one step further and said, "Well, we're going to we're going to reduce it eight cents as part of the base package bill." Well, it doesn't appear that that money was there, and so they also lowered the basic allotment by one hundred and fifty dollars. So they're not going up as much as the as the House was because they're they want to do an additional four pennies of of sales tax reduction. And then they actually have a step farther in the second year. It goes down another seven cents to 85 cents. So that's the part that's now contingent upon a sales tax swap happening. That's in addition to the the pennies of compression that are in tier two, which is the enrichment tax rate portion, which we really didn't get into the math on that, but, but that was in the House as well. So the House had pretty significant tax relief already built into it and paid for. And now the, the Senate's version goes really double down on that. And if the if the tax swap goes, it's really triple down on the tax relief. At the same time, taking any discretionary dollars that we had coming from this and earmarking it towards the teacher raise. And, and that's the part that really, you know, we're trying to get across to legislators is this didn't happen in, in one biennium. This has happened for a number of, of years, and, and since the last buy-down that occurred that we didn't pay for, the states made the, the savings, if you will, uh, the credit, gotten the credit for the taxes uh, growing on the taxpayer, the increased values, and then the fact that we may have had a tax ratification election here or there be, just to survive, and that the local school boards... They don't know what's best. And so what we need to do is reduce it again and keep them from raising it more than a certain percentage. Don't let them raise the taxes greater than what's currently the CPI, the 2.5%. So the dollars have been allocated sometimes two, two and a half times of the dollars that are there to allocate. So the Senate version, it's got to be rectified with appropriations because the, the, it doesn't appear that the money's there to, to fund it. I think as, uh, again, we're sitting here, it's kind of interesting. We may all want to redo this uh, <laughs> <We might. laughs> conversation in a day or two. Um, 
you know, we know what the House did because they took such a different approach on the on the school funding piece of it. They started early in the session, a lot of engagement, a lot of public input, a lot of testimony. Uh, I think a lot of work with members mm-hmm. in the House to make sure issues were addressed or at least there was broad understanding. You know, there are certainly issues in the House version of the bill that if I were making a decision all by myself, I might make that particular section different. Yeah. But on the whole, I have to I have to give them really high marks on the work they did and uh, the way they brought all of these disparate parties together to support the bill on the floor. As we sit here today, we just don't know what the Senate's going to do. We're three weeks from signing die. The Senate did not take as much public input or, or, or at least over as long a period right. as, as the House. Uh, and I keep hearing that their proposal was being revised over the weekend and even this morning. So, um, you know, we will have to see what comes out of the Senate. I'm more concerned about that just because I know less about it and, right. and the way in which they got, went about developing it as as well as some of the specific issues that Charles mentioned that we know about. Um, I would be perfectly fine if we get to conference committee and wind up with something that looks a whole lot closer to the House version simply because I think we all know a lot more about it and there was a lot more uh, broader input in in the development of it. But we'll just have to wait and see. We'll see what the Senate does in the next few hours or next few days. Yeah, you're exactly right. The House is, they did it the right way. And, and while it's not, it wasn't perfect, you know, there's a lot of, of kudos that should go out to them to actually go through the 18 months of figuring out in the commission what what everybody needed and and then to balance and put out the best they could that, that tried to hit on all cylinders and and I think they really had something, and then it seemed like it was a long wait, and the Senate came up with a substitute. To well, and and the Senate, it wasn't like the Senate hadn't been busy, but they started on the tax reduction First, yeah. piece, yeah. and I think that's where their efforts were earlier in the session, yeah. while the House really spent its time and efforts early on the education piece of it. So what you see are different starting points and maybe different maybe different emphases yeah. on how those two issues get ranked between the two bodies. As a practical matter, David's you've seen this forever and just over the few sessions that I've been engaged in this, there's typically kind of politics. And some people call it compromise. Right. Some people it may not be compromise, it just may be the, the way things are. But I think we've all known. We've all known this is going to the funding of schools and the tax, the the property tax reduction for taxpayers, were going to kind of go at the same time. Yep. Or they were going to die at the same time. Yep. One of the two. Well, we're going to sit here and we're going to wait and we're going to see what the uh, results of the Senate's conversation are. And you're right, David. We may want to go back and delete this whole thing and <laughs> just redo it <laughs> and, re- and redo it or add to it, which I think would be interesting. David, HD, I want to say something for your listeners uh, that you might not otherwise have told them. I, I do want to compliment you personally as superintendent of A-Leaf. And, Charles, I know you've spent a lot of time, but uh, your listeners really do need to know just how much effort you've put into this during the session, not only on behalf of A-Leaf, but, frankly, on behalf of a lot of districts, not only in the Gulf Coast area, but across the state. And and I think you've made a real difference this session. Um, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature. 
I choose to be, sometimes even when circumstances don't warrant that, but um, I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will get to the finish line uh, with something that will be good for schools. And, and again, if it's something at the end of conference that looks a whole lot closer to the House's version, which we simply are more familiar with and we've had more time to study the impact, I, I will be perfectly fine with that. And um, and the real key is not to lose this opportunity yep. to do some good for schools and for taxpayers. Yeah, it's not a time to have red lines in the sand. Right. That's that's the that's that's going to make everybody lose, and we can't have another repeat of that twenty-one like we had last session. No, and you're right, and and I think all three of us, along with others who are is engaged. Uh, in this process, there's no intent to be critical of the Senate or to be critical of not, any plan. Not at all. Uh, but you're right. We're, m- we're more comfortable with what we know. Uh, in my role, I mean, as a superintendent, I have to be as concerned about the taxpayer who's funding the education of the children in which I'm responsible for as I do with the employees that I have. And, of, of course you do. And so so I don't want anyone to uh, ever mis- misunderstand myself or any other superintendent for that matter that we're only interested in more money going into the school system so that we can spend it or in some people, you know, people who are critical of us, hopefully we spend it wisely. You know, you mentioned my, my involvement and others that are involved. We have talked about property tax relief on an equal footing because it's, yep. it's a critical component. So I don't think anyone can go into this blind and say, give me this much money so I can continue educating kids and taxpayers just pay for it and you don't have a wouldn't it be nice if we got to a system where local boards not only had to make the choice whether to raise taxes, but got to make the choice to lower, to lower taxes? Wouldn't it be nice to have a system that actually gave local communities that option? And just so everyone understands, the reason they don't really have an option to lower the taxes is because they don't have an option to raise them back if they need the money. <laughs> or because you have a state funding system exactly. that strips the money out and reduces state aid. Right. And so that's, that's kind of one of the underlying structural issues. Exactly. You, you cost yourself. Uh, yep. So it's not an, it's not an easy topic. Uh, and I don't, you know, people listening to this, I have no idea if they understood this or not. Or, you know, it's really hard to do a podcast or do any type of recording on school finance, it's hard to do it when you're standing in front of them with a marker board and a magic marker. You know, it's 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 a complex situation. But today's purpose was, as we sit here today, what's the difference? House Bill Three out of the House, Senate Bill uh, House Bill Three come out of the Senate. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we could summarize it by the big difference right now is in teacher pay for in the Senate versus the way it is in the House. The amount of property tax relief, if you will, is is greater in the Senate than it is in the House. There's one other really big difference that uh, I think we all know there's been a lot of conversation about in the last few days. The Senate does include some provisions tying funding for districts to performance of kids on STAR exams. Yep. I think there's been quite a bit of blowback (laughs) on, on that statewide. But the House did not include those provisions. The Senate, at least as it came out of committee, included those provisions. We'll see if they survive the floor debate. Mm-hmm. Um, but just from a philosophical level, that is a very big difference uh, between the two versions of the bills as to whether funding ought to be tied to how third graders or any other group of kids do on a state standardized exam. Right. 
that will get people, parents' attention sometimes faster than tax rates and their taxes will. Is yeah, that 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 the whole issue of assessment and accountability is a, another topic for another day. However, because the Senate has introduced it into their version of House Bill Three, it's become a topic of today. My, my only comment on that is, is I think there's a lot of opportunities to improve the assessment and accountability. And and if there was anything positive or anything good that were that was introduced, I'd hate for it to get just dismissed because yep. of it not being in a, in, a, in a bill that really deals with that type of issue, you know, so we'll deal with that later. So before we exit, anything else, uh, I'm sitting here, I'll just update everyone. It's one o'clock on May the 6th. The Senate did come out and they started talking about the bill. And then the next thing you know, they, <laughs> something happened and they went back behind closed doors. And they recessed again. <laughs> they so. recessed again. So, <laughs> so, so something something that they planned for happened and, or didn't plan for happens. Growing up, I don't know, remember where I got it, if it was my folks or – but, you know, the old adage of don't bite the hand that feeds you, you know, in this case, you know, they feed us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we don't want it to be – to come across as, as we're – anti the legislative bodies that that work on this. It's a very tense time when everybody's trying to to do the right thing. And and so it's very wide competing interests in this process and the democratic process of, of determining what the best policy is going forward. And sometimes the least that passes, the better. But at the same time, this has been necessary or needed change for a long time. And so in order to, for us to make significant changes, I think we've got to have more dollars. That's just the, the basics of it. I want to wrap up by saying a word in support of and say a good word about our legislators. Uh, we, we sometimes are quick to speak when we have criticisms and not as quick to speak with compliments. I think our listeners always need to remember Texas is a little unusual in many things, but how we do legislation, our legislature only meets every other year, and even in that off year, only meets for 140 days. So we do all of the business of state government in a very short, compressed period. Our legislators, both senators and House members, truly are citizen legislators. They spend most of their lives home making a living and being regular citizens and hearing from their constituents. I've not met very many over the years who went to Austin with the desire to actually mess up schools. And I think there is a genuine commitment to trying to help public schools. Those of us HD, you know, you've been up there. We know at this time of year they're starting early in the morning. They're going late at night. We'll give them our honest feedback, but I wish them great success because we're all depending on it. Well said. We can always have our our debates and disagreements, and that's part of the, the system. Our forefathers, both at the national level and the state level, had had great foresight. Yep. One of the things I find fascinating about our Texas government system, and Charles alluded to this, it's it is designed to kill legislation. Yep. <laughs> right? It's it's not designed to pass legislation, thank goodness. Because uh there's some really bad ideas that get floated out that there. That need to die. <laughs> that need to die that need to die. So well hopefully this has been helpful to those of you listening. Uh we'll we'll we're gonna we're gonna have another episode uh, soon with with uh, a little bit more follow-up and, and hopefully some closure about what, what it actually happened. Hopefully this was helpful. 
for everyone uh, that listened, thank you, and, and I appreciate you joining Impact Ed. This has been Impact Ed with HD Chambers and Elif ISD. Thank you guys, and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. This has been an AMP production.